Welcome everybody to the Three Rivers Talk Show. This is your host, Drew Von Sayo, covering the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and I mentioned on Monday that I was going to talk about some of the current pieces on the Penguins that they could use in their rebuild or also in the transition from one contending team to another. And so I went through the Penguins roster and I looked at all players on the active roster who are who were born in, excuse me, 1994 or closer to present day, more recent. And I came across nine players. I know on on Monday I mentioned the name Kasperi Kapanen. He was a big one with only being 24 years old. But the others that I found were Jake Gensel, Mark Jankowski, Jared McCann, P.O. Joseph, John Marino, Mike Matheson, Marcus Pedersen, and then Tristan Jari, as I also mentioned on Monday. This gives the Penguins four defensivemen already on their active roster who would either be involved in the rebuild the transition, or the newly rebuilt team, four defensemen, four forwards, and one goaltender. Now, I know you're probably thinking, well, there's 12 forwards, six defensemen, and two goaltenders on an active roster, so they're still short. However, there are young prospects in the Pirates, or Penguins system, sorry, used to talking baseball with prospects, who have the potential to do serious damage, including Nathan Legare, Drew O'Connor, Sam Pauline, Sam Lafferty as well, currently on the taxi squad. And then you get into players such as Josh Curry, who is a little bit older but could be on the borderline, uh, Sam Miletic, He's another one, only 23 years of age. So it's not going to be a very drawn-out process for the Penguins, despite what so many people think. It's not a full-scale rebuild like what Ben Charrington is doing with the Pittsburgh Pirates that I will touch on here in the next segment. But I think what you're going to see out of the Penguins is a rebuild similar to what the Rangers did, where it was just a 2 to three-year quick turnover, getting rid of their older, slower players, and then bringing in some new young talent, getting a little bit lucky in the draft, especially being able to draft Alexi Lafreniere with the number one overall pick. I mean, let's be honest, that pick should have gone to the Detroit Red Wings as being the blatantly obvious worst team in the National Hockey League last year, but it's one of those things where the Rangers lucked out and they got him. You can't fault them for taking the best player in the draft by far. And then they also went out when the time was right. They brought in Artemi Panarin from free agency, previously been with Columbus, But he's another young player who 
can provide the Rangers first line with a lot of speed, a lot of skill, and then also help out Alexi Lafreniere, which is exactly what the Rangers want. So I think the Penguins, they really need to start looking towards the future and not only stocking up the minor league system with young prospects and talent, but also continuing to do what Jim Rutherford did with John Marino when they traded for him for a sixth-round pick out of Edmonton. I can honestly not think of a better use for a sixth-round pick than what Jim Rutherford got out of John Marino. But the Penguins, they also cannot continue to keep trading their first-round pick. I mean, the Penguins have not had a first-round pick in quite some time over the last few years because Jim Rutherford has always traded it at the deadline in hopes of acquiring a forward or a defenseman that can help the Penguins make a serious Stanley Cup run. And I get it. You have Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang, three of the best in the NHL. Without a doubt, all three will at some point make it to the Hall of Fame. Crosby Malkin might even be unanimous, but, you know, Jim Rutherford has to get creative with adding at the trade deadline. Now, as I said before, he always likes to trade that first-round pick, so maybe instead of trading a first-round pick, you're trading this year's and next year's second-round pick, or two seconds and a fifth, or something along those lines. You have to change it up from the quality of the pick to the quantity of the picks, not always giving up your first rounder. Because, I mean, let's be honest here, your first round pick is someone that you highly regard, and it's somebody that has serious potential. So when the Penguins drafted Kasperi Kapanen in 2014, he was their first round pick. And so that's somebody like of his caliber that you can get in that first round. Now, the Penguins did draft 22nd overall that year. So if by some chance they were to have an off year and finish with a worse record, they would get an even higher pick and could draft somebody with more talent than Kasperi Kapanen, which is, again, why Jim Rutherford cannot keep trading away that first round pick. Eventually, what's going to happen is He's going to trade away that first-round pick so much and so often that the Penguins' minor league system is going to get completely deteriorated, worse than it already is, and the Penguins are going to have nobody. And instead of a quick two- to three-year rebuild like what the Rangers did, it's going to end up being a long, drawn-out rebuild like what happened before the Penguins got... Lemieux or between Lemieux and Sidney Crosby. And so he just has to keep that in the back of his head at all times of making sure now with Crosby, Malkin, and Latang getting older, finding ways to balance contending now versus looking up to the future, looking out to the future. I mean, in the Kasperi Kapanen trade, the Penguins gave up a few very talented pieces to the Toronto Maple Leafs. 
it was a six-player deal for the Penguins, and yes, it did get them Kasperi Kapanen, but the Penguins also gave up Philip Hollander, who was a very highly touted prospect. They made a trade with Ottawa a few years back and gave up a very high-talented goaltender, Gustafson. And it's one of those things where you cannot keep trading these goaltenders and forwards or even defensivemen who are former first-round picks or highly drafted picks. Gustafson was a second-round pick, but you cannot keep trading away those prospects because at some point, it's going to turn around and haunt you. And if it means that the Penguins have to not make as many trades or as big of a trade at the deadline, so be it. I mean, you just you can't keep being that aggressive. Now, I want to move on here because it's been a major concern over the start of the Penguins season here. They've started every game very slow. Of the six games that the Penguins have played so far, they have been leading after the first period in only one of those games, which was Friday night against the New York Rangers. And the Penguins, they have to figure out how to get going early on in the game. And for some reason, they always find they find different ways to be able to come back and win these games. But at some point, their luck is going to run out, and they're not going to be able to win all of these games. So they have to start getting more creative in the first period, not taking an entire 20 minutes of hockey to wake up and say, okay, now we're ready to play. No, you have to be ready to play when that first puck drops, and you see the clock change from 20 to 1959. That's when you get ready to play and that's whenever you start trying to score because what's going to happen is and in a way it's happened before for the Penguins this season where an opponent's going to score multiple goals early in the first period and if they score enough it's not going you're not going to be able to come back. That's exactly what happened the second game in Philadelphia, when Tristan Jari got pulled for Casey DeSmith, he, Jari gave up three goals in about 10 minutes, and that was the start of the Penguins' downfall in that game. Not only did it result in Tristan Jari being pulled, but the Penguins also lost that game. And so, you cannot continue to start that way if you expect to win. The Penguins they went on to lose that game five to two, where three of the first or three of the five goals were given up in the first ten minutes of the game. If you cut that out or score a few in that first period, it either becomes a much closer game for you, so you don't have to recover as much, or you get out of there with a the win. And I feel like part of this whole slow start situation is what caused Mike Sullivan to shake up the lines. You know, I talked either last Monday 
or it was either, I think it was last Friday, actually, about the success that the Penguins' third line had been having. Well, since those two games in Philadelphia, they haven't really been having that much success. Tanev, Jankowski, and McCann, they had been playing well individually, but they weren't scoring and producing like they had been. So it resulted in Kasperi Kapanen moving up to the third line, along with Teddy Bluger. Mark Jankowski and Brandon Tanev went down to the fourth line. Tanev flipped sides from right wing to left wing. McCann moved up to the second line. And the goal was that these new combinations would hopefully create a spark. And what I saw last night is that Kapanen worked very well with Teddy Bluger. Moving Jared McCann up to the second line was very productive and a great move by Mike Sullivan. Seemed like he was working well with Malkin and Rust. I didn't see too much of Jankowski and Tanev to note whether they had changed or had better performances. But whether it's Blue Girl on the third line and Jankowski on the fourth, or vice versa the way things were set up previously for the first five games of the season, I don't think you can go wrong there either way. And quite honestly, I don't think you can go wrong with having Tanev on the third or fourth line. He's going to produce and give you the same effort regardless of which line he's on. It's just a matter of how many minutes you want to give him. And then finally here, I want to talk about P.O. Joseph, who made his debut Friday night in Pittsburgh against the New York Rangers, which was expected and announced before the game. But he was paired with Chad Ruweedle. Now, I know I stated Friday in the episode, expect him to get paired with John Marino, balance his defensive structure with Marino's offensive instincts. But... I like what Mike Sullivan did here, pairing him with someone defensively sound like Ruedel, who is very simplistic, but also makes very smart plays, both on the ice to get in proper positioning, smart passes, movement off the puck, etc. Now, this obviously resulted in John Marino moving to his left side, and Cody Ceci being his partner on the right. Now, I would at some point like to see Joseph get paired with Marino once he's a little bit more settled down and comfortable to see how he does with an offensive-minded partner like Marino. But then the only problem with that would be is you would have to decide whether Ruedel or Cece would flip to the left side and CC has had issues defensively on his right-hand side, which is his strong area. I couldn't imagine how much he would struggle on the left. So, I feel like the Penguins will almost need to either bring up Kevin Churchman from the taxi squad and then scratch CC, or go out via trade or free agency and bring someone in. Now, I know that there would presumably be a quarantine situation involved in there in one or both options. But you cannot continue to try and fill the spot that was used by Matheson and Ricola with a right-handed defenseman. I mean, Marino has shown 
situations already where he struggled on that left side. And if Matheson and Ricola are going to be out for a significant period of time, you can not continue to play John Marino on that left side. It's just not going to work out for the Penguins and end up hurting them more than he would be helping them. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show, and when we return, Pirates talk about the Jamison Tyone trade. We will be right back. And welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show discussing Pirates baseball and the Jamison Tyone trade. He was sent to the New York Yankees for four prospects, two right-handed pitchers, Miguel Yahure and Ronzi Contreras, along with infielders Michael Escado, as well as outfielder Kanon Smith. Now, Jamison Tyone has not pitched since early 2019. Obviously, being out all of 2020, the shortened 60-game season, as well as the large majority of 2019 due to attempting different rehab options and then ultimately needing his second Tommy John surgery. Now, I'll admit I was a little surprised that anyone would want to trade for a pitcher coming off of his second Tommy John surgery with no idea of how he's going to perform. I mean, if this was a day before the regular season and Yankees scouts had seen him in spring training, you know, the Pirates and Yankees play each other a lot in Bradenton or Florida even. And I would say, okay, well, they saw something they liked. They wanted to go out and get their guy. But nobody has any idea how Jamison Tyone is going to perform. So, Jamison Tyone could go out there and be a lights-out Cy Young caliber pitcher, but he could also go out there and be an absolute nightmare with no command or control, and the Yankees ended up trading four talented prospects for nothing. And when I heard that the Pirates had traded Tyone, I was a bit surprised because I did not expect him to be traded. You know, going into the offseason, I thought, okay, well, it's going to be Josh Bell, Joe Musgrove, and Adam Frazier. Those are going to be the big three that get returns that the Pirates want, and they're going to be gone. And so far, two of the three have happened, but Frazier is still on the active roster, and I did not expect Tyone to be gone. I was fully expecting him to be the ace of the rotation this year, as I said Monday, which, by the way, I am no longer doing predictions anymore until we get closer to spring training starting and the regular season because I'm not wanting to see anybody else get traded that I predict to have a large role. Obviously, I know that doesn't have much of an impact on things, but it just was a bit shocking that I predicted him to be the ace Monday, and then Thursday he's traded. But I want to talk about the prospects that the Pirates got back for Jamison Tyone, starting with Miguel Yahure. And before you ask, that is how to pronounce his name properly. 
He saw some major league action in 2020, starting at the alternate training site for the Yankees and then making his way to the Bronx. He only threw seven innings, but he had a 1.28 ERA in those seven innings. In the minors, he was a starter, had a career 218 ERA, and I know I mentioned with Will Crow, you cannot be too fixated on his high ERA because of the low innings. You can also not get too excited over Yahoo Now, you can get more excited about Yahoo than Crow, but you can't create these unrealistic expectations for him and all of a sudden get disappointed when he's not what you projected him to be. I don't want fans to see that 1.28 ERA and think, oh, he's a great pitcher, and then he's not what they think. I'm not saying he's going to bust or be a terrible pitcher. I just don't want the fans to create unrealistic expectations, especially when he was traded for somebody as highly regarded as Tyone. Now, Yahure does only throw three pitches. A fastball or cutter has a lot of movement on that fastball. So it could be a bit of a four-seam fastball, also a bit of a cutter. And then he, he throws curveball and a changeup. So, again, I would like to see, like what I said with Will Crow, where he adopts a fourth pitch. But I don't think it would be the end of the world if Yahoo does not, especially with the large amount of success that he's had. Actually, I believe it was Eddie Yeen that I mentioned that about with adding a fourth pitch, but it might be a little bit too late now for Yahoo with as close as he is to the major leagues, to try and learn that fourth pitch. It doesn't mean the Pirates won't try to f- still make him learn one, but it might be harder to teach him. And then, of course, there is the other right-handed pitcher, Ronzi Contreras, throws the same pitches as Yahoo Maybe not as much motion on his fastball, so it might just be more of a traditional four-seam fastball. And he's expected to debut either late this season or 2022. He's another hard-throwing starter, has the potential to be a back-end starter or reliever, and I think he's going to do well with the Pirates. Starting this season in AAA Indianapolis is going to give him a lot of experience to get involved in the rotation and do what he does best. And then you have the other two pieces in Michael Escado and Kanon Smith, who are both very young have a lot of upside and potential, but the only problem is is that both Escado and Smith are two to three years away from the major leagues, especially Michael Escado, because he's only 19 years old. But the one thing I have seen about him is that he does have a lot of power for a 19-year-old infielder, which I found to be extremely intriguing because, you know, most... Middle infielders, second base, shortstop, they don't have a lot of power. They're more of your contact guys who are going to put a ball in the gap 
and wind up on second base with a stand-up double rather than somebody hitting a home run 375 feet to left field. But if he can continue with that successful bat and hit for as much power as he does, then that's going to be something the Pirates will need to take complete advantage of. Now, my overall thoughts on the trade, coming off of a second Tommy John surgery, I think that's about as good of a return for Jamison Tyone as the Pirates were going to get. Even Ken Rosenthal reported that the Pirates were not going to get top prospects for Tyone. There's just simply too much uncertainty with him and not knowing whether he's truly going to pan out or not. I hate to see Tyone leave, not get another chance to pitch in Pittsburgh after his injury, but unfortunately this is a business and that's how the Pirates are doing things. I'm excited to see what Miguel Yahure can bring to the team in 2021. I'm excited to see what Romzy Contreras can bring, whether it be this season or next. And now Ben Charrington has said he's looking to add to the team with the veteran starting pitching being a priority. And right away that tells me he's looking to sign somebody, an established veteran, on a one or two year deal, preferably one year in his case, hope that they have a great performance in the first half of the season, and then flip them at the deadline in a high-demand situation for some prospects to further the rebuild. And as a rebuilding team, that's exactly what you have to do. The Pirates ideally could have or should have gotten more out of Derek Holland had he not imploded two or three starts into his season. But unfortunately, that did happen, so... He was not able to be traded and then became a free agent. However, if the Pirates were to sign someone like Anibal Sanchez, Julio Tehran, or even an older guy like Jake Arrieta, who's still a free agent, I'm sure I just gave a ton of Pirates fans PTSD by mentioning the name Jake Arrieta, but he is a free agent. He's out there. He could probably sign on a cheap contract looking for a bounce-back year to get something going in the last years of his playing days, and then hopefully get shipped to a contender at the deadline. I mean, that's what ideally the Pirates would do. And I like that they're looking to do that because at the deadline, there's such a high demand for contenders to get good starting pitching, or even teams that are on the hinge of contending, and they think, you know what, we're going to do this to make a push for one of those wild card spots and hope that once we get to the postseason, anything can happen. And so at that point, the Pirates would get a much larger return for that pitcher than they would maybe what they got for Tyone or what they got for Musgrove. And I think that's what the Pirates should have considered doing with Jamison Tyone if he performed well is trading him at the deadline when the demand is extremely high. He's on a cheap contract in his second year of arbitration, and he would bring in a large return of prospects at the deadline. But I also see the flip side, and the Pirates thought, you know, let's just get something for him now. We don't know how he's going to pan out. 
I'd much rather play it safe and get some prospects for him now. He doesn't pitch well, and then we can't get anything for him. And I do respect that safety and cautious approach by Bench Harrington. And as a rebuilding team, it's just all about getting prospects, stocking up the system with talent, and then developing them to the major leagues. Which, in this trade, Charrington clearly got a bunch of talent. Some that are going to make their impact sooner than others, but a lot of talent nonetheless. And then finally, this allows Stephen Brault, Chad Cool, and JT Brubaker to get their own rotation spots without a signing being made. Now, I'm not saying this is my prediction for the rotation, but you have those three, Keller and Crow, who are left now. And I obviously, I've said before, I don't like the idea of Brault, Cool, and Brubaker each having their own rotation spot, making a jump from throwing 50 to 60 innings in 2020 to then being expected to go 130, 160, somewhere in that mix for 2021. I think they would benefit from doing some sort of mini rotation, like I mentioned, Monday. But if the Pirates want to go that route and are confident in Brault, Brubaker, and Cool to each be a legitimate starter in the Pirates' rotation, then I've just got to trust Ben Charrington and trust that process. I've given Ben Charrington a lot of the benefit of the doubt, and if that's the way he wants to do things, then that's another area where I'm going to have to trust him. But I feel, feel like a lot of that also relies on Derek Shelton to use them properly, know when to take them out of games, when to let them continue pitching. As I've mentioned on air in our radio station when I'm in there, is that it's all about pitcher usage, knowing when to pull your starter, when to send him out there for one more inning. And obviously Derek Shelton's going to learn that over time. This is just going to be his second season as a big league manager. But I think it's something that is vital for him to pick up sooner rather than later during this rebuild so that towards the end of the rebuild, he already knows what to do. And then when the team starts to contend and he's managing games on a cold night under the lights at PNC Park in October, he knows exactly what his game plan is and how he's going to get the Pirates to win that game, whether it be a winner-take-all wild card or Game 5 of the NLDS or Game 7 of the NLCS or even better yet, Game 7 of the World Series. So it's just a slow process for Charrington, for Shelton to get it all done but I think it's manageable for them, and they're going to do quite well in those roles. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show, and when we return, the latest news with the Steelers' offensive coordinator position, as well as AFC-NFC Championship Game Talk here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. (laughs) 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for today's final segment featuring the Pittsburgh Steelers. As I mentioned before the break, the latest with the offensive coordinator news, as it was reported by Jeremy Fowler of ESPN that the Steelers are going to go ahead and promote Matt Canada to their offensive coordinator position, which is something that I was fully expecting. I knew that they brought in Hugh Jackson, brought in Pep Hamilton, as I talked about on Monday. But it's something that I was still expecting the Steelers to do in promoting Canada. I think that Kevin Colbert and Mike Tomlin, they all liked his ideas and his influence on the offense in little it's and bits last season, and they're hoping that he can take the next step forward and be a complete offensive coordinator. And now, Matt Canada, he did have a lot of success at Pitt as the offensive coordinator. I mean, let's be honest here, he made Nate Peterman look very good, ultimately what allowed him to be drafted by the Buffalo Bills. But I also think that Canada has the potential to invigorate new ideas, get a lot more motion in the Steelers' offense, take shots downfield. Supposedly, Canada was involved a lot in the play-calling Week 17 in Cleveland when Mason Rudolph started, and it allowed Rudolph to throw the ball 40-50 yards downfield. Allowing Canada to be the offensive coordinator also establishes that relationship with Roethlisberger, with Rudolph, that was already there. You're not bringing in somebody, whether it be Hugh Jackson or Pep Hamilton, who has an entirely different offense. The offense is going to be different in 2021, that's for sure, but it's not going to be completely different for the Steelers, and not a single quarterback is going to have to learn as much new information under Matt Canada as they would with Hugh Jackson or with Pep Hamilton. Now, I will say this. Matt Canada cannot build this offense around Ben Roethlisberger. Roethlisberger has one year left on his contract, might play two at the absolute most three more years. You cannot build this offense around a max of three years of Ben Roethlisberger. You have to design it the way that you want any quarterback to be able to run it. And if Ben cannot run it, then you move on from him. And as a future Hall of Fame quarterback, I hate to say that, but the Steelers are beyond the days of catering to Ben Roethlisberger. They're beyond the days of doing whatever he wants to keep him happy. I mean, he's almost 39 years old. He's not some young buck anymore who can do what he used to. I mean, the Steelers, they never did any QB sneaks with him for fear of injury. They did not do play action because he did not like it, although a lack of run game definitely did not help him. And I just think that if Matt Canada wants to be successful, he's got to design design this offense the way that he wants to with play action, with QB running, whether it be something as simple as a QB sneak, a read option, triple option, 
even if Ben doesn't take off with it ever on a read option, still run it and know that it's in the Steelers' repertoire of plays. And if they wanted to, they could dress three quarterbacks in Rudolph, Roethlisberger, and Haskins, send Haskins out there for a play, and actually run the read option or run the triple option as a quarterback. It gives them that flexibility. And I think it's something that the Steelers are going to have to rely on. And I also want Matt Canada to not be as predictable with play calling as Randy Feekner was. I mean, it was blatantly obvious that Feekner scripted plays and he had already written up what type of play he wanted to run on specific downs. Run on first down, run on second down, third down pass, and nine times out of ten it resulted in the Steelers going three and out and punting because they had no run game. And then on third down, you're trying to force the ball to the first down marker, or if they did complete the pass, it was a two-yard crossing route, and it got smothered because everyone's sitting on routes knowing that the Steelers aren't going to throw the ball deep. And that just cannot happen. Now, I want to talk here about AFC-NFC championship games that happened yesterday afternoon and evening and provide some thoughts and commentary about those. Starting with the NFC game, the afternoon one between Tampa Bay and Green Bay. Now, Tampa Bay dominated this game in the first half on both sides of the ball, offensively, defensively. They had five sacks in this game, their defense did, two of which came in the first quarter. I remember watching this game yesterday and thinking, well, if this quarter is any indication of how the rest of this game is going to go, Green Bay is in some major trouble. And this is a Tampa Bay team that did not have Antonio Brown as a third wide receiver option for Tom Brady, who, let me remind you, is 43 years old. However, Rob Gronkowski did have a great game, particularly running, particular, particularly Leonard Fournette, but Ronald Jones as well had great games for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, whether it be running the ball out of the backfield or going out and catching passes. And, I mean, my gosh, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin made some tremendous catches. And they made Antonio Brown's absence look non-existent. Steelers fans, you clearly remember how good of a receiver Antonio Brown was. To make his absence look non-existent, you need some miracle throws from a quarterback, which they got from a unanimous future Hall of Famer, and you have to be able to make plays as a receiver. And both of those situations happened for the Buccaneers. So, and then I want to talk about what happened at the end of the half. Tampa Bay had the ball at about their 40-yard line with eight seconds left. I do not believe there were any timeouts. And so Brady said, you know what, we're just going to take a shot for the end zone here, because why not? We're up 14-10, to 10, nothing to lose, 8 seconds left, probably wouldn't get another playoff 
to get in the field goal range, make it 17-10. So he throws the ball deep and finds Scotty Miller in the end zone for a touchdown. When there are eight seconds left, you know that your opponent does not have any timeouts, which is why they're going to take a shot for the end zone. Why are you not playing in a prevent defense and forcing them to throw the ball over the middle and run the clock out? But instead, you allow them to not only take that shot downfield, but complete a 40-yard pass with one second remaining in the first half. I mean, that's just inexcusable. I mean, the Packers had to have seen what Oakland did to the Jets to allow the Jets to stay winless at that point in the season. Ultimately, they did not finish the season winless. But I feel like the Green Bay Packers mimicked the Jets' play call on that and just did not care that Scotty Miller got wide open and caught a pass in the end zone. I can't believe that. Now, in the second half, Green Bay did have a slight advantage. Not a lot, but a slight advantage. However, there were some questionable decisions from Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur. And it was late in the game, fourth quarter. Green Bay's driving with the ball. They're down eight at the time of this game. Probably about six, five maybe minutes left in the fourth quarter. Third down... Inside the 10, I believe it was a third and three, first first down would have been at the six. At the nine, Rodgers tries to force a pass into the end zone. Incomplete. He had a wide open running lane, had he just turned his head about 30 degrees, and he probably could have walked into the end zone. It was that wide open. So then, you're still down eight, 31-23 as I mentioned, Third and three on the nine. And Matt LaFleur, I kid you not, if you didn't watch the game, you're going to be shocked when I say this. He sent out the field goal unit. You are down one score. Kicking a field goal is going to put you down one score. In both situations, whether you kick that field goal or not, you need a touchdown and a two-point conversion to tie the game. Why would you not take that opportunity right there? That was by far the Packers' best chance to tie the game, and they blew it. With poor decision-making from Aaron Rodgers and poor coaching from Matt LaFleur to kick that field goal. What does getting you down five do? Absolutely nothing. There's no five-point play. You can't kick a field goal later on because then you're still down two. You need a touchdown. The only possible rationale that would make sense would be is that if LaFleur kicked that field goal, they're down five, a touchdown would win. If he was playing for the win, I could kind of understand that. But when you're down eight with five minutes left, your first priority has to be going for the tie. You can't win if the score isn't at least tied at some point. And then, of course, there's the late pass interference call that ultimately sealed the game for Tampa Bay. That late, very, very late flag came in. Personally, in my opinion, it was pass interference, but the officials had been letting them play all game. 
If you're going to let the boys play all game, you can't make a game-changing call like that with less than 90 seconds to go. You just can't. So I think that's a bit of a, a consistency issue with the officiating. But you know what? Those officials are human. They're going to make mistakes. If it was blatantly obvious, then it was blatantly obvious. Now, on the AFC side, it was very different. Kansas City dominated this game pretty much from the get-go. Buffalo, they were always playing catch-up. I mean, Pat Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, I should say, he does not like to be called Pat. Patrick Mahomes made very typical Patrick Mahomes plays. Athletic, sidearm passes, accuracy when he's hit as he's throwing. You name it, Mahomes does it. And this is despite dealing with turf toe as well as being just clearing the concussion protocol. I personally did not expect Mahomes to play in that game. With the hit that he took against Cleveland and the confused look on his face walking off the field, I did not think there was a chance in hell he would play this Sunday. But he made it back. But I feel like even without him, Kansas City could have won that game, especially when Buffalo only scored one touchdown this game. in this game. They went for two and failed, so it only counted for six of their points. But they relied on rookie kicker Tyler Bass to make six field goals. You cannot beat Kansas City trying to win a game on field goals. Unless you have the best defense in the league and can find a way to stop Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, Sammy Watkins, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Miko Hardman, you're not going to be successful. And then the fact that Kansas City only punted once in this game makes it worse because it proves your defense struggled to stop Mahomes and the Kansas City offense. Which goes completely against what I just said, where you do not have the best defense. So you have to be aggressive and maybe go for it on fourth down. And I kid you not, Sean McDermott made a very questionable call as well. Was very close to the end zone, or at the very least, within a reasonable distance. He was down 12 at the time. I don't remember the exact yardage that the field goal was. I don't remember how close to the end zone exactly. But they were down, his bills were down 12. Kicking this field goal put them down 9. Why on earth are you not going for a touchdown there? If the Bills would have converted that 4th down play and then potentially scored a touchdown, they would have been down 5 points with kicking the extra point. Five, di- five points is a major difference than nine points. As a matter of fact, the Bills were on the nine-yard line. Because I remember thinking last night, even if the Bills do not get this, then you're forcing Kansas City to drive 91 yards down the field. They were on the nine-yard line. And they kicked a field goal. It stayed a two-score game. And I kid you not, Kansas City drove down the field the next series, 73 yards and scored a touchdown. They had the opportunity, the Bills, to go from a five-point, or they went from a five-point game 
to then being down 19, all because Sean McDermott wanted to kick the field goal. Even if, you know what, I'm not even going to go there because I just, I don't understand why McDermott decided to do that. There's no extra benefit of being down 9 than there is to 12 unless he again thought he could win this game kicking field goals. And if that's the case, and if McDermott truly thought the Bills could win that game in Kansas City by kicking field goals and not relying on Josh Allen, who is a very elite quarterback and an amazing wide receiver in Stephon Diggs, then he needs to be fired tomorrow. And that's just the truth. I mean, you cannot go into a playoff game with the mentality of expecting to win on field goals. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show. I thank you all for tuning in today. Be sure to tune in on Friday for what is hopefully the last episode where I am solely recording remotely and not in the studio. Hopefully next week I can get back into the studio, be on air over our Bethany Online Radio, and then this will become a recording of the live show in case you missed it. Again, thank you all for tuning in today, and be sure to tune in on Friday.